Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to episode 19 of Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And I know that I sound weird on this opening, and it might be because this is the last episode. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not really the last episode, but whew, today we're doing a film that we teased last time, and I was really excited to watch. We're talking about Possession. Possession. From 1981, not to be confused with, uh, there are several films called Possession, but we're talking about the one from 1981, a kind of a notorious film among critics and fans and horror film fans and fans of European cinema. This is yet another one where a lot of people have a lot of thoughts and opinions about them all over the place, and I can see why, having watched this. (laughs) Yeah, this was a first watch for both of us. Yes, yeah, one of the first times. This I think this is the second during the podcast that we've both watched a movie blind, unless we saw it new. I guess. Yeah, yeah, the second like not new release that we saw in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. So it is notorious for sure. And having watched the movie, I can totally see how film school kids, people who are getting their doctorate in film or cinema in general, you could write a whole thesis on this movie. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's a lot happening. (laughs) There's so much (laughs) happening. And honestly, the reason why I bought this movie and the reason why I thought it would be good for us to watch it is merely because... I saw that they had a Blu-ray release. I got it advertised on my Facebook, Mm -hmm. like I do, because I frequently look at horror stuff. And I saw the scene of Isabel Adjani, who plays Anna in the movie, in the subway, like having the very famous breakdown in the subway where she's all by herself, screaming, clawing at herself, clawing at her clothes, smashing things on the walls, rolling around and a bunch of food and gross stuff because subway. And I was like, oh my gosh, we got to watch this movie. The synopsis of the movie does not give anything away. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how, how could you? Yeah, like how do you summarize a movie like that in three sentences? Yeah, you don't. Basically, it just says, a woman starts exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking her husband for a divorce. This is the movie where our catchphrase and chaos ensues <laughs> really gets put through its paces because it's like the movie opens. We find out that this couple, one of them wants to divorce the other one and chaos literally, figuratively, metaphorically spanning several different genres ensues. (laughs) Yes. I want to say that this movie, the tagline should just be and chaos ensues because the whole movie is so chaotic just to give you kind of our cast of characters, there's Isabella Johnny who plays Anna. If you haven't seen this movie, perhaps you've seen her in Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. She played Lucy in Nosferatu. Sam Neill, he plays Mark. Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. I'm sure you've seen him in a bunch of stuff. Margie Karstensen, who plays Margie Gluckmeister in the movie, one of their neighbors. And then Heinz Bennett, who plays Heinrich. And that's The only people I'm even going to mention being in this movie, because there's a very small, it's very insulated, very small cast of characters. But our main 
our main characters are Anna and Mark. Anna is asking Mark for a divorce, and she... (laughs) This is the dead air that we were talking about. (laughs) Before we started recording, we were like, we're going to introduce the movie, and then it's just going to be crickets, because we don't know what to say. No, we do have things to say. Oh, yeah. There's there's both everything and nothing to say. It's just a very exhausting movie. Yes. I do feel very tired after watching it, because there is... I mean, you could argue that this movie is not a horror movie. You could argue that it's a sci-fi movie. You could argue it's a relationship drama. You could argue it's a period piece. There's just so many ways to describe the movie. I think horror is a good all-encompassing genre to say that this movie is a part of because it is horrific in a very real-world sense, as well as a science fiction sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of the genres you described wrapped in kind of a horror package. Mm -hmm. And really, of all of the things we're going to talk about, it's the real people and their real feelings and behaviors that are the most horrific, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. So just to kind of flesh out a little bit more just from saying, you know, that it's just a divorce film. It's a divorce between two people who are completely unhinged, absolutely not fit to be parents, not fit to be partners. Really, honestly, truly, and I say this without any sort of levity, they both need to stay in a psychiatric institute. Yeah. They need help in the most desperate way. And watching a relationship between the two of them fall apart is very painful because there are aspects of it that... Every person has every person who has experienced a loss of a relationship, be it a friendship or with a family member or just any good, formerly good thing that is now turning sour or turning chaotic. There are aspects of this that you will feel deeply, mm-hmm. but then it is pushed to this absurd level that like hits you viscerally and it parts it lost me where I'm like, these are not real people yeah yeah but then something crazy will happen and it'll just pull you right back down into being in the story if i had to watch this movie by myself i probably would have paused it and taken some breaks yeah i I, I would agree with you on that definitely because the pacing of it makes it feel very long I don't know if I'm the only person that feels like that, but this movie was two hours and four minutes long, and I swear it was the longest two hours of my life, where I was just like, (laughs) I don't know, I like simultaneously felt the passage of time so keenly while watching it, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, it was only two hours? Yeah, and I think some of that has to do with the way they... It's interesting, like, they, on the one hand, like, jerk you back and forth emotionally, and yet it's done in a way that makes it feel more drawn out and less jarring. Like, you'll be in this very, very, like, intense, visceral, emotional scene, and then they'll cut to something innocuous, and rather than feeling, like, jarred or lulled or, like, taken out of that emotion, you just feel like really unsettled because you know that it was merely an interruption and Mm -hmm. not a relief. Yeah. And so you're just kind of like in this weird, like 
because they established so early on, like, this just really intense anxiety-producing emotion, anytime in the movie when you aren't actively experiencing that, you're just waiting for it to happen again. I mean, it's like... <laughs> It's like being in an abuse cycle almost mm -hmm. where if something bad isn't actively happening or somebody isn't actively antagonizing you, you're just in a state of anticipation because you know it's going to happen again. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how I felt watching this movie, which made it yeah. very long. Yeah, I definitely agree with you about the abuse cycle thing. We start out the movie with, it looks like you're, I don't want to say average every day, but it looks like... A messy breakup. It looks yeah. like a, the most messy breakup. You know, the wife is, um, she's committing adultery. She has a boyfriend. She's had him for a long time. Sam Neill has just come home from being undercover. He's some sort of agent operative. Not sure if he works for the police or the military. Could be any of those things. But she's been carrying on an affair. And they have a son together. And it's really messy. She comes home sometimes. They'll, they'll have civil conversation for like, five minutes and then it goes to blows or you know knocking things over there's a scene where sam neil is breaking chairs in a restaurant very very violent very crazy and it just looks wild and then things start to devolve where you'll get a scene where sam neil is not acting possessive and intense and wild towards her and he'll actually start making sense where he's like how can i help you how can i you know how do i make our family together again which i mean those are the cries of a desperate man yeah we know absolutely. that it's not gonna work but then anna will go off the rails she'll hurt herself she will destroy things she'll put her, their son in jeopardy at a very early point in the movie she leaves their son alone for a long time to the point where this kid is like covered in peanut butter and jelly but we have no idea how long. We just know, like, potentially days. Like, yeah. it, it could have been a while. But they're doing this increasingly disturbing behavior. And they're forced into all these very strange, abnormal, nonsensical, like, interpersonal relationships. Like, Mark's relationship with Anna's boyfriend, Henrik. And Mark's relationship with Henrik's mother, and Mark's relationship with uh, Anna's friend Margie, like, it's so hard to get the film in your grasp because the way that the interpersonal relationships work is not like anything I've ever encountered in my life. Yeah, no, I'm reading this book right now, which is not a horror book at all, but it's about sort of this group of people in 1930s New York and the different ways in which their lives intersect. And because I'm almost done with it and it's really good, <laughs> I was kind of thinking about it going into this movie. And like in that book, you see these unexpected intersections, you know, somebody who begins as an acquaintance, you know, one of their family members becomes very important to the main character. And so at first I was like, oh, is that what's happening here? Like we're examining the sort of strange ways our lives, like an accidental intersection, turns out to be a very needed or meaningful relationship. I'm thinking of Mark and Heinrich and Heinrich's mother. Mm -hmm. But there's kind of not a lot of meaning there. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of here's another person with another flavor of, I don't think it's too strong a word to say crisis. Mm -hmm to bounce off of either Mark or Anna or both of them in a state of crisis. Yeah. 
or like mania. Yeah. Yeah. Mark seems more manic towards the beginning of the movie because he's experiencing the immediate loss of his family. And there's this really striking scene that I remember and I wanted to mention. It's the one that I mentioned before of them in the restaurant. So I really love the cinematography in that because Mark is sitting at a corner table facing in a perpendicular direction to Anna. So they're facing in perpendicular away from one another at this corner intersection. And there's mirrors behind them. So you can't see the camera, which I Mm -hmm. thought was genius. And the cameraman is going to focus on Mark's face and then kind of like panning to focus on Anna's face. He only does it twice, but you can't see the camera in either time. But Mark absolutely loses it inside this cafe. But just before that, he says he doesn't want to have anything to do with Bob, their son. And I thought, how could you be so callous after, you know, wanting so badly for this to work out and for them to talk so frankly about it and for it to just devolve into this very uncomfortable, very public, very violent fight. And then later he comes back and he's like, no, no, I want us to be a family. I don't care what it is that you've done. I just want you to come home. I want you to be back. And Anna does not want that. She doesn't want to be back she kind of flirts with like, okay, yes, I'll I'll be the, the woman that you want me to be. And then she'll immediately be like, no, I have to leave. Mm-hmm. It's an abuse cycle that both parties are like actively turning the wheel on. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a codependency. Yeah. A- abusive codependency cycle. So let's talk about that a little more in regards to Anna mm-hmm. very specifically. It's kind of a bummer because I feel like we lose this or it changes or it just gets muddied in all of the tentacles. Yes, I said tentacles. We'll get to that (laughs) later on in the movie. But what did you think about this kind of idea that they set up and they toy with, but I didn't feel like we got a resolution on, about sort of Anna as... You know, the the wife that Mark wants her to be versus the person that she seems to want to be versus the person that she kind of is through her behavior. Yeah. So I love that. At least I think this is what the director, Andrzej Kalowski, I think this is what he was trying to show. So... The way Anna views herself through Mark is evidenced in, or the way Mark wants her to be, is the schoolteacher, Helen. Mm -hmm. The way Anna wants to be is who she is with Henrik. Very sexual, very free, and Henrik mentions he has accepted her ways, whatever that might be. Yeah. And then who she is is evidenced by the final scene, which mm-hmm. I don't want to get there just yet. Yeah, but, yeah. but I think that that fracture is exactly what we're supposed to be examining in the movie. And I'm glad that you brought it up because I think that it is relatable. Yeah. If we boil it down to who we are inside, who we want to be and who our loved ones perceive us to be, I mean, those are the three things. Like, that's always what you're warring between. Where is the intersection between who I am, who I want to be, and who I am perceived to be? But 
Anna doesn't seem to be, and I hate to use this word as a pun, but she doesn't seem to be in possession of any of those three things by the end of the movie. She's hopeful to be those things. She wants to be who she was with Henrik. And I think that kind of evolves as we get through the movie too. Yeah. But I think you're right though. I think that it was not fully resolved because Mark kind of takes the option away from her with what he does with Henrik. Yeah. I mean, amongst other things. It seems like most of the movie, and the reason why I picked this movie is because I assumed that this was going to be a power struggle between Anna and Mark, and Mark removing Anna's agency to act as she wanted. And he attempts to do that, but eventually he completely has to be hands-off. He can't. He cannot possess her. He right. Can't, he can't have her. Right. He can't have her as who he wants her to be, and he can't have her at all, which that's something I want to talk about later. But there are so many ideas in this movie that are, like, almost there, but not quite fully formed. Yeah, I would agree. What did you think about it? Well, I agree with you that I think it was interesting to see that sort of trio of identities at play. I also love that from the very beginning, and even this gets muddied, but I loved that at the very beginning, we saw that very clear example of, you know, women are always painted as hysterical. Mm -hmm. And so often we see men exhibiting behavior that is as, I will say, emotional and as extreme Mm -hmm. and as air quotes dramatic as women, it's just viewed in a different lens. And I think at the beginning, especially in some of Mark's behavior, we see in kind of stark reality, like, you know, he is the one that is, you know, displaying really, really extreme behavior, which is a traditionally, you know, more femme trait. Mm -hmm. And you've got this, you know, air quotes, masculine man, this spy, this agent, Uh, This person who is very defined by work and a masculine identity being just absolutely unable to process or control his emotions. Yeah. So I really liked that. Again, like we see it evolve in very strange ways because it starts out feeling very, um, very believable and a very interesting examination of gender. But as nearly as soon as I had that thought, Then we get this behavior from Mark where I was like, wait, before we really knew what was going on, I'm like, okay, the movie's called Possession. Is Mark the possessed one? Yeah. Because he's like acting just the way he moved. Some of his movements just did not seem human. And I wonder, we see a lot of characters in their movement. There's a lot of like modern dance influence Mm -hmm. in a lot of their movements. Just like really, really interesting embodied kind of motion happening there, which I thought really enhanced the strangeness of the film and that visceral quality. But it was kind of a bummer that, you know, on the one hand, we have this very real stark portrait of Mark, and then it switches and you're like, oh, maybe he's the possessed one. And then it kind of switches again about four different times before we reach the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a clear handle on a lot of these characters. Mm -hmm. Like, on what was actually driving them. Yeah. Because every time I thought I had it figured out, something else was thrown in or, you know. And maybe that's the point, is that they are all sort of air quotes possessed 
by something that prevents us and the others from sort of knowing them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I guess. <laughs> it does not seem like any of these characters could exist in real life. Oh, no. Yeah, no. But, like, Mark kind of swings wildly from being this highly emotional, highly physical man in a failing relationship who is losing what he thought he wanted in his life and there's that scene where he's kind of rolling around on the bed he's been in this bed for three weeks i think it's a hotel whether he's detoxing from drugs we never find out yeah we know that he's been undercover for a long period of time he's made a briefcase full of cash but we're not exactly sure what it is that he did it could be that he was selling based off of the time period and we know that it's west berlin it could be that he was selling military secrets. They mentioned vials of something. Yeah. Could be anything. But in any case, he goes from being this like very wild, emotive man into this sort of cunning Joker-esque figure where he's moving strangely, like he's almost being puppeted. He walks with a limp for a little while, which we're not really sure why he's got a limp. He ends up going to meet Henrik and his boyfriend, who she's been had a relationship with for a, about a year. I guess Henrik is aware of Mark, but accepted Anna's ways. And the interaction between Henrik, who is all in and of himself a very strange and elusive character, and Henrik's mother, also not sure. Yeah. The interaction that they have there is almost... One of gender fluidity, one of like Mm -hmm. a give and take, a meeting of equals. There's a strange fight. There's a part where you think that they're going to maybe make out, maybe dance. What? Yeah. (laughs) What I thought this movie was going to be about, you know, an exploration of gender roles where we see Anna as your typical caged woman as a person who has not had her own autonomy in relationships in life, forced to become this, you know, cookie cutter wife and mother. But none of that ended up being the case. Yeah. Now she's been by herself for a year. She's had to take care of her son, Bob, for a year while Mark's been away. But she has her autonomy. I mean, as much as she can in West Germany or West Berlin at this point. But she has autonomy. Mark allows her to leave the house. She's not physically caged in. She has a friend, just one, which does seem odd that um, a mother would only have one friend, no one else to reach out to. But it didn't end up being what I expected at all. Like this exploration of like a caged woman or not having her own autonomy didn't have anything to do with that. It had more to do with looking within the self At least I'm assuming that. I keep going back to this idea like, no, she wanted to be this thing and that's why this happened. But also at the same time, it's like, you can't say that for sure. You can't say that the tentacle thing happened because of this. Like, who knows why the tentacle thing happened? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Sorry. I talked myself in circles for a second. But can we talk about the Jello? Uh, yeah influences in this movie absolutely yeah i mean so this came out in 1981 so still kind of well within that you know era of Mm -hmm. giallo in european cinema 
The use of color, like a lot of blue, a lot, a lot of blue. Anna is always wearing blue, like mm-hmm. a very distinct color of blue. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of blue in the backgrounds, a lot of blue walls. Their entire apartment. Yeah. The car, the very notable car mm-hmm. is uh, like a robin's egg blue. Tons of blue all yeah. over this movie. It looks like it's almost filmed through a blue filter too yeah for the most part at least i was thinking that in anna's second apartment like Mm -hmm. not her and mark's apartment but the the other apartment the other apartment there's a scene where the private investigator is walking towards the camera and it looked like it was filmed with a blue filter just based off of the shine on his head but sorry continue well and anna's eyes are very blue right and and that's used to distinguish her from helen who is played by the same actress Helen has green eyes instead of blue eyes and slightly lighter hair. Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, Mark also has blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of the film, Mark is wearing blue. He has a blue suit that he comes home in, but he changes his clothes. And very notably, Anna does not change her clothes for a little while. There's at least a few days, maybe longer than that, where she doesn't change her clothes. But Mark changes into, like, khakis and a green sweater. And then through the rest of the movie until the end, he's kind of wearing this combination of sort of drab colors. But it is very notable. Like, everything is blue in this apartment, with the exception of that orange phone. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring that up later. Mm -hmm. Because I want to keep going with the color thing. There's also some very notable color choices for the other cast of characters. Henrik, at the beginning, is wearing all black. By the end of the film, he's wearing all white Yes, in the bathroom scene. Henrik's mom only wears black. Yeah. Margie only wears purple. She's kind of an outlier. I don't know why Margie wears purple. I have no idea. Yeah. She seems kind of tacked on, honestly. She's just like a way for Bob to not die while his parents are out doing whatever. Right, yeah. The other thing is Bob... Bob wears, when he's going to bed, he wears blue pajamas. Mm -hmm. But when he is awake and playing, he wears a combination of red, yellow, and blue. So primary colors. Which, that may or may not be significant. But also, I just want to say, I really hope that after the events of this film, that Bob got to be placed with a normal family. (laughs) The whole movie, I was so stressed out worrying about that kid. Yeah. I'm just like, how long has it been since this kid ate or yeah. saw his parents? Yeah. Or like he wakes up screaming during nap time. Mm-hmm. He's being taken care of by his teacher who also slept with his dad, who looks just like his mom. Like <laughs> there's just so yeah. many avenues for this kid to just be ruined. Yeah. Bob is like a serial killer now. Oh, my God. And he, like, he also knows Henrik, so he has to know that there's something going on there. He calls him Uncle Henrik, but which, yeah. like, obviously. But, yeah. And, like, not to jump all the way to the ending, but, like, you know, Bob is doing the normal little kid thing throughout the movie where he's, like, you know, making siren sounds and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, that's cute. He's an annoying little kid. God, I wish he'd stop that because it's <laughs> on my nerves. But then at the end of the movie, when the actual sirens come in and he's like, don't open the door, don't open the door. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and also, so like, uh, again, unanswered questions, like so many things. So 
we're led to believe on the one hand that Bob is sort of in that small kid state of like being present for things and aware of them, but not able to process them. Mm -hmm. But then that very final scene, you're like, oh, Bob either knows or has somehow been made aware of way more than we thought. Yeah. Like more than even like, I feel like we the viewer know. Yeah, like he has some sort of like preternatural knowing of what's happening or there are multiple scenes where we find out that Bob is not having a good time at nap time. He's like inconsolable when he's trying to sleep. He screams and he calls for his mom. And that happens when Helen is there with Mark because, of course, Mark sleeps with Helen because it looks just like his wife. Why not? And she's like, air quotes nicer. Yeah. And dressed all in white and takes care of his kid and is not, you know, throwing out shit with at Henrik. him. <laughs> yeah. Throwing things at him, cutting herself. Man, this movie is going to have so many, so many. Um, this movie is a giant content warning. Yes, exactly. It's going to have so many content warnings. But so. There's a a scene where he, where Bob wakes up in the middle of the night and starts screaming, mommy, mommy. I mean, it doesn't seem like he ever goes with her to her other apartment. Yeah, I don't think so. But maybe she's intimated what's going on eventually when that starts happening, which that came completely out of the blue for me. I had no idea that there was going to be tentacles a tentacle yeah, monster in yeah, this movie. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Because, um, yeah, it's... Uh, and, and this is not... There are plenty of horror films that do this where... I mean, even... I would even argue um, The Perfection that we mm-hmm. did about a month ago. You know, you think you're watching one movie and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, hey, you know, an element is introduced and you're like, wow, all right. Didn't know that that was part of this. Yeah. This movie definitely does that in the form of all of a sudden we get to meet a tentacle Frankenstein monster situation. Which I didn't even know it was a tentacle at first. Like when we first see when we first mm-hmm. see this creature it's not as fully formed. We get one of the uh, private eyes. He comes inside into the apartment and kind of like stumbles upon the bathroom. He's saying that he's checking the windows. He's like the worst PI. Yeah, he's not good at his job. He literally chases her into this building. And it's like, you're not, you're supposed to like observe and report, not like chase women down. Yeah. But he wanders into the bathroom and there's, like, this weird pulsing, like, oozy-looking, squelchy wall. <laughs> and you're like, what the heck? And then, of course, Anna stabs him in the neck with a broken wine bottle. And you're just like, what just happened? And then we don't see it for a while. Right. We're just like, um, okay, I guess. Like, we thought that this movie was going to be about Anna being insane, like, slowly, you know, descending into mania and it is not about that i mean i guess you could say like partially maybe but it seems like not only is she not going insane it's like she's deriving clarity from the mission that she's on now like there are parts where she was or she was having like a manic you know depressive episode but now she's past that and now she has purpose 
Okay, so big question. Okay. Well, two big questions. Okay. Number one, is the tentacle monster real or is it imagined? So that's an interesting question. At first I thought, okay, it could be imagined. Because the time when Henrik sees it, it could have just been the PI's body. But I think that when Mark sees it is the cutoff of knowing, okay, now it's real. Now, Mark totally could have just been, you know, participating in some shared mania with his ex-wife, soon-to-be ex-wife. But to me, that is Mark's departure because I believe that he sees her with the tentacle monster after he blows. Yeah, it's definitely after he blows up the apartment. It seems like Mark wants one last chance at getting Mm -hmm. his wife back. So he is like, okay, she's killing people. She's got parts in the fridge, which I think she's feeding to the tentacle monster Yeah, to make it grow. That's crazy. All right. I can handle that because Mark is just kind of like rolling with these punches at yeah. this point. Yeah. He's just so desperate to get things back to some semblance of normalcy that he's willing to accept whatever it is that Anna has done, including putting heads in the fridge. Henrik has seen this, so he even goes after Henrik and kills him. Not because he's jealous of Henrik, not because Henrik has been, you know, in a relationship with his wife for a year. Those things he can forgive. But what he can't forgive is that Henrik is going to go to the police. Mm -hmm. So he kills Henrik, blows up the apartment, and then Anna, I think, kills Margie. And then that's when he's like, all right, go to Margie's house. I'll come and find you. He's thinking, okay, we'll start over at Margie's. And then he's there and finds her with the tentacle thing, which we don't get to see its face at that point. But I think that is the moment in which I'm like, okay, it's real. That's real. That's when Mark is like, okay, I can't do this. There is nothing left for me here. Yeah. She's gone off the rails, man, fully at this point. She can't have Henrik because he's dead, but she doesn't want him anymore. Right. Henrik was more a means to an end. What did you think? What do you think? Is the tentacle real or not real? I think it's real within the world they've created. I guess my larger question is... Is the overall world of this film a shared delusion Mm. between the two of them? And I say that in part because we have such a small cast Mm -hmm. and we rarely see people Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Yeah. And every time we see another person, they are either actively being brought into the delusion or they are on the outside causing some kind of threat that plays into the delusion like we see the guards up on the berlin wall Mm -hmm. that mark is kind of obsessed with Mm -hmm. uh, that seem to be triggering to him in some way Mm -hmm. we see the old woman on the street in front of anna's second apartment building after mark blows it up and she almost seems like she is she is participating in a delusion of her own that is overlapping with Mark's right. in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So I think the tentacle monster is real for whatever reality they're experiencing, but I don't know that they are existing in 
both physically and mentally in the real world, let's say. Mm, that's a good point because really this whole movie is about a shared delusion kind of imploding, exploding and imploding. Yeah. Speaking of shared delusions, though, the orange phone inside yeah. of Mar- inside of Mark and Anna's apartment. I don't think it goes anywhere. I agree. Yes. I think it's not connected to anything. I completely agree. Because there is one instance where Mark speaks on a white telephone when he is in the hotel. And that conversation we know is legit. But the other conversations that Mark and Anna have on that, I think only Mark has. Maybe Anna talks on it like once or twice. But every time he has a conversation with somebody, like he says, okay, I talked to Heinrich. Heinrich, sorry. Heinrich? Heinrich? Heinrich. Heinrich. I talked to Heinrich, and Heinrich's like, what's the meaning of this? He doesn't uh, He doesn't mm-hmm. remember this conversation. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know. But Mark also reinforces his own delusion with conversations he has with Margie on that phone, with conversations he has with Anna on that phone, that kind of push him further into the madness that he ends up experiencing over all of this. I'm kind of torn between these two things. So either none of those conversations are real or the only conversations that are real are the ones between him and Anna. Mm. That's their shared Mm. delusion telephone line. Yeah. They have a direct line to one another in craziness, basically. Yeah. But everybody else, any other person, he does not have a legitimate conversation with, Mm -hmm. which I think is reinforced by the fact that the other folks in the movie are like, what are you talking about? I did want to ask you, what do you think of that strange scene between Mark and Margie when Margie comes over to watch Bob? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And and again, this is why I, I wonder if it's all part of some kind of delusion or something. Or, you know, again, like, is everyone in this movie except for maybe maybe bob Mm -hmm. possessed by their own like inner tentacle monster or something (laughs) because margie is just as weird as the rest of them yes exactly and there's like this weird it's fascinating because every time we hear we often just hear margie's voice on the telephone Mm -hmm. and it's always margie like playing that kind of typical role of like the good concerned friend where she's like on the one hand like she's gonna like be very straight with mark about like here's where anna is here's what she's doing she doesn't want to get back together with you mm-hmm. and it's obvious like hey i'm like kind of friends with both of you like i'm not gonna try to like talk my friend into getting back together with you but also like hey sorry your marriage is breaking up like mm-hmm. it seems like a very just like normal like friend of a couple that's breaking up kind of a situation right but then when we actually meet margie and she's in this scene with mark all of a sudden it goes from like normal concerned friend of a couple to like very oddly sexually charged yeah like where did that come from yeah it was so strange like she takes off mark's shirt both of his shirts he's wearing like a sweater and a button down underneath she takes off his shirts. Then later after Bob's in bed, Mark goes in there and, like, they embrace. We're not sure if, like, it leads to sex, maybe. Also, Margie has a broken leg. And after Mark encounters Margie, that's when he has that limp. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. Like, her character in general 
is very strange. So related to all of that, I have this theory that I'm literally just forming right now. So I I didn't even think about this in the movie. Do you think that there's something that Mark is working through in all of this, like sexually? Because Anna doesn't seem interested in sex with him, mm-hmm. but she is interested in being sexually active first with Heinrich and then she creates this being Mm -hmm. to be like her ideal partner and we see sex is a very very big part of that Mm -hmm. mark kind of doesn't know what to do with margie's advances Mm -hmm. i noted that moment with helen where she says you don't have to sleep with me and Mm -hmm. they do end up sleeping together Mm -hmm. and then there's also the weird sexual tension between heinrich and mark Mm -hmm. like I wonder if some of what Mark is like, I don't even want to say working through because he's like not working through Mm -hmm. it and that's contributing to the way he's behaving, is either some kind of repressed sexuality or impotence Mm -hmm. or if there's something there. Yeah, because there's a scene where he and Anna are laying naked together as they're kind of like parsing through the dissolution of this relationship They're laying naked together, though, which to me does not seem like a time when you're going to be fighting or kind of like separating is when you're laying in bed together and especially not naked, you know? So potentially like immediately prior to that, immediately prior to us being privy to the scene, there was some sort of like failure to launch per se. Mm -hmm. And we also know that Mark has just come off a year long stint of being undercover and like I said before, there's a scene where it looks like he's detoxing. He It looks like he's both in grief over the loss of his relationship, but also that he's detoxing from something. Maybe drugs. Don't know exactly. It could just be straight grief because grief does crazy, yeah. crazy stuff to you. But on the other hand, it also looks like he might potentially be getting off of something yeah like he's sweating he's sick he's not eating you know he's lost a lot of weight it looks like he you know and i mean granted we didn't get a great look at him prior but he looks a little bit thinner so yeah potentially he's both grieving like okay i can't perform maybe drugs maybe because of that maybe you know ptsd i can't perform my wife wants me to perform She wildly wants me to, and now I have to figure out how to be that person again. And he even says, like, later in the movie, he says that he doesn't care what Anna does. He just wants them to be a family again. He wants there to be stability again. And and I think that that means even in lieu of her going to be with Henrik. Yeah. Heinrich. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of subtext going on. And I know the director was going through a very messy divorce from an actress at the same time that he wrote this. So potentially some of that is his own feelings, insecurities, issues kind of coming to the surface and being visualized through Mark and through Sam Neill. But there's so much to get through. There's so much to unpack in this. That's a great idea, though. I didn't even think about that. I mean, it literally just struck me. I had noted the moment where Helen says, we don't have to sleep together. 
And I just kind of, when you were asking me about Margie, kind of connected those two things. Do you think Bob is real? Hmm. Or because this could be totally reading in too much to it. He is also blue, like mm-hmm. Sam or, or like um, Mark and Anna, except for when he's wearing red and yellow, which would be orange, like the phone, which we think is probably not real either. And I wrote down that I think Bob is merely a vessel and a foil. He is the only reason why Margie exists in this story at all. And also a vessel for them to get to Margie's house. But Margie only exists in this to relay messages, which maybe she did, maybe she didn't. And also to take care of Bob when his parents are otherwise indisposed. But Bob is also the reason why Mark meets Helen, who is basically his wife's doppelganger. I mean, you might as well say, like, right, yeah. it's basically his, his wife's doppelganger. Bob otherwise, like... They forget about him regularly. Yeah, like yeah. he, he's he's definitely a victim of neglect for sure. But I wonder. Like, I thought, okay, he's a vessel and a foil, which at surface level he totally is. But I wonder if he even exists. That's a really interesting question. And here's my ignorance: not having children and not being around enough kids of that age. I did notice that a lot of times when they're carrying him around, he is more like an object than a Mm -hmm. child yeah and maybe that's just like because he's like asleep and maybe like sleeping kids are just like you know a sack of potatoes and that's i I don't know i don't Mm -hmm. carry sleeping (laughs) children around like at all so maybe that's just my ignorance but i notice like especially when mark is handing him off to helen at toward the end of the movie Mm -hmm. it's like he's barely a kid it's like he's handing her bob and a bunch of bags and bob is just, like, one of the things that she's holding, not, like, this sleeping kid. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's not real. He doesn't really play with toys very much either. He's playing with, like, model boats. Yeah. And, like, he has some books, but he mostly is eating. (laughs) Like, in a large part of the movie, he's just eating. Yeah, or he's in the bathtub um, diving. I just had a really bad theory. Okay. Did Bob die at some point? Like, yeah. was Bob a real child? But did Bob maybe die before Mark went away on this latest mission? Mm-hmm. And, like, is Bob, you know, is that part of the reason that their marriage has broken apart is because they lost this child? Very possible. Um, and that would be why, once again, his colors, because he doesn't exist. Yeah. And maybe Margie, maybe that's why she tries to take care of Mark in the way that she does, mm-hmm. is because she knows that Bob is dead, but yet she still keeps getting phone calls from them to try and take care of him. Yeah. Um, because mysteriously, when all of the the like really intense fighting and violence happens, Bob is not there. He's either... Yeah. Maybe at school, maybe he's down playing with the other kids, you know, whatever. But there's always a reason why he's not there. And yeah, maybe maybe he did die. I think he drowned if he died. Yeah, because he's he's always in the freaking tub. He's always like, and he's always like face down in the tub. Yeah. Or like underwater, and then he kind of pops back up. And like that end scene, 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think he drowned. Um, so speaking of that, and maybe this actually kind of rolls in together, but that scene, so the, the scene that made me want to watch the movie, which is Anna in the subway tunnel. Mm-hmm. So it was extremely exhausting to watch that because I know physically that actress just had to go through hell oh, in order yeah. to get to that point because it is, it is physically exhausting to watch it, to watch somebody lose it so completely I know that I say this a lot. I don't know where she had to go mentally in order to get there. But this is like, imagine, uh, you know, Reagan and the Exorcist, the physical contortions that Linda Blair had to go through in order to make that realistic. This is like that on speed. Yeah. Or like Tony Collette in Hereditary, yeah. but like three times as long. Yeah. Like... And real tears and real drool and, you know, like really, truly looking like she lost it. And it looked like it was filmed in an actual like working subway in Germany. It was. Yeah, I looked that up. Yeah. So like imagine if you just accidentally stumbled on that. It's terrifying. So random side story. I had this. My favorite teacher ever that I ever had was my AP English teacher in high school. And he told us the story one time. He used to be a drill sergeant for women. Can't remember Army or Air Force, some military branch. Sorry, Mr. Weirich, can't remember. (laughs) But he told us the story about how there was this woman that he was the drill instructor for, and she just never could get it right. Like, she could never fold her stuff in the right way. She never did things by the book. And that was his job, was to get everybody to do things by the book. So finally, he called her into the office and was kind of dressing her down and saying, like, you got to get together because you can't make it if you keep doing this. And he said that he thinks that she was possessed. And at Mm. that moment, she had, like, this crazy breakdown, and he could feel the heat coming off of her, like, like physical manifestation of this woman just going absolutely crazy. And I feel like if we were in the room with Isabella Adjani doing that scene, that she probably would have manifested that shit. Like, Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. it, it is truly, there is no faking. Like, no, that's some sort of like method shit that you have to get yeah, to, to do I mean, that. Yeah, you have to tap into something like almost primal within yourself. That's like emotional core kind yeah. of work. And like it would hurt. It would oh, physically yeah. hurt. Oh, the, yeah. The way that she's like moving her body and arching her back and flailing around on the stone ground, you know, and smashing herself into the walls and stuff like it would hurt. And also it's absolutely filthy. And the reason, uh, like I mentioned it when we were watching the movie, I was like, man, her clothes are freaking gross. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like she never changes her dress. And we find out it's because she had this episode in the subway. And there's some like metaphorical discussion that she's having about two sisters, Chance and Faith, and Chance killed Faith. So she had to nurture Faith. And I like, I paid attention to that, but I was like, concentrating way too hard on the subtext otherwise but how did you feel about the miscarriage that she had at the very end like she says it's a miscarriage in a like metaphoric sense i think that she's working through an actual oh yeah miscarriage absolutely yes i definitely think that that was a 
physical representation of the sort of like embodied grief of losing a pregnancy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that has something to do with also losing a child. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's like a stage thing. Maybe she both lost a pregnancy and she lost a child. Or maybe she's working through all of it together. I mean, I know that like there's loss of possibility. I mean, there's the worry that you're never going to get there again. And then if you have an impotent husband, yeah, it's that much more difficult. And there's a part later towards the end of the movie where after having sex with this tentacle monster who's sort of like more fully formed at this point, she's had sex with that multiple times. She says that like, there's a part where she had sex with it all night. It's very tired, which I was like, oh, that's gross. Yeah. And then towards the end, you know, Mark walks in on her once again, having sex with this. And she tells Mark right before she leaves for the last time, before sort of the culmination of the movie, that she has God inside of her. And I had to wonder, does this not actually have anything to do with faith or God, but more that she has a child inside of her? Like the God child, the child of her and this monstrosity that she's created that Mark could never give her or could not come to fruition. Yeah, that's entirely, yeah. It's so intense, man. It is, it is. There are so many, like, really, really intense ideas at play throughout this movie, and they're all kind of flung at you in no particular order amidst a lot of just really... I mean, just the acting throughout, it's really intense. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that somebody who, like, doesn't experience a lot of anxiety, I don't know if they would react in the same way. But for me, I was just like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Like, it's making me anxious because I know what that feeling is like. Yeah. It's just a lot. So you're kind of grappling with that. And then you're like having all these ideas like chance and faith and, you know, psychosexual blah, blah, blah. And then there's this kid that might be dead and there's a lot of blue and there's tentacles and like, <laughs> you know, yes. like, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And like going back through it, it's easier to piece together some of these themes like as we're going back through it. But, yeah. when, but when you watch the movie, it's given to you in no context, no shape, no order that would be, you know, would make sense for you to grasp onto all of these things and kind of like braid them into the idea of a relationship that is falling apart and the reasons why a relationship would fall apart like that. And the fallout that you have for that relationship and, and the people and ideas, the ideas that we create around the people that we love and how we perceive the people that we love and what they're actually like on the inside. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, Anna's doppelganger is Helen. It's almost like Mark formed Helen for himself because she is everything that he wants. She's there to take care of his kid, which who knows if his kid even Exists. Oh, he knows if Helen even exists. Yeah. But he. she also says, you don't have to make love to me. And he says, I'm not trying. Yeah. And they end up sleeping together. But it's a, it seems like a very comfortable, like, natural thing, even though they've just met. They've yeah. literally just met. Who even knows? But she emulates what 
he wants as like his perfect mate. Mm -hmm. And then Anna does this thing. I guess you could say it's on a more dark level because she, she's actually had to murder people in order to get to this point. But she has this tentacle monster that after uh, proper care and feeding, you know, watering and feeding of PIs and stuff, it turns into Mark. It looks exactly like Mark. It sounds exactly like Mark because it is Mark, but it's got this like these black eyes and it's sexual. It's more sexual than the real Mark is. So I guess you could call him Mark II or something. But he's also only wearing black, which I thought was another interesting, like, jello kind of theme, is that Mark II is only wearing black. But Anna has created her perfect mate. Mark has created his perfect mate out of the body of the yeah. person that they were in a relationship with, but none of the inside it's so weird. Doppelgangers are weird. Yeah. Yeah. Doppelgangers are very weird. This is our second doppelganger movie in a row. Oh, dang. Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't know. I mean, we had no idea well, that yeah, it was a we, doppelganger there, movie. <laughs> there, were, there were many things we didn't know about this movie. That's true. Including the very, very end. What's up with the explosion? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So this movie is set. It was made in 1980. It's, it came out in 1981, set in West Berlin. So it's not a good time for West Berlin, obviously. The very end of the movie, Mark II is trying to get into the apartment of Helen because, I don't know, maybe because they were created from the ideas of the real Mark and Anna, that Mark II and Helen are kind of on this, like, like... Like collision course pair. yeah like they can't not be with one another because the their original two are gone like they're dead yeah. mark and anna are dead dead so helen and mark two like have to get together and they have to get bob and that's why bob's like nope i'm out yeah because i don't think he has any problem with helen he, right. he's it seems like helen is like a good surrogate mom to him obviously his teacher so he doesn't mind her but Mark II is trying to get in, ostensibly evil, potentially. I mean, it seems carnivorous. There's a part earlier on in the movie where Anna's making sausage or ground meat. So I would assume that that's because she needed to feed that to whatever tentacle monster. But I think that that's supposed to be like the war. Like there's yeah. a nuclear holocaust that's happening. Yeah. Or like, you know, Russia has finally gone back and invaded Germany again. Which, what a weird way to, like, wrap the beginning story of Mark's, like, the reason why Mark was gone back into the movie. Because that the same thing happens with the dude with the pink socks. Yeah. It's like, I thought we were done with this whole Mark being a special agent thing. Like, yeah. ages ago. Eons ago. And also, what the heck was that? They were saying that the, his contact, that the guy who was buying the vials was had pink socks, but the guy with the pink socks was one of... The people who hired him. So he was like a double agent or something. or Yeah. Or all of Mark's work was for nothing. Yeah. It could be either of those two things. Mm -hmm. I legitimately did not think that that was going to come back around full circle. Yeah. Not at all. And the weird implication is that the two doppelgangers seemingly could survive some kind of nuclear blast. Mm -hmm. Because they're both kind of just standing there. It, it's interesting that so Bob hops in the tub and goes face down where it's almost like, okay, well, 
everybody everybody that can die is going to die, so I'm going to go back to being dead if we're going with the whole Bob is dead theory. Yeah. And then the other two are just kind of standing there, mm-hmm. and then the movie's over. It's so weird because I there's a, there's a movie I love that pulls a nuclear explosion out of kind of nowhere, mm-hmm. and it kind of works. It's like my favorite noir movie where you're just like, okay, wow, we're going for this and people are surviving and we obviously don't understand the science, but sure. And like this movie feels like it tries that, but it makes even less sense. It's like, this is a movie about the actual destruction of a relationship and all of the bodies that it left behind, but it didn't also need to be a movie about the literal destruction of Germany and Berlin. It felt like we were having a difficult time getting to the end, to the culmination of the movie, finding a good way to to kind of tie it off. And then it was like, all right, let's do Germany, war at times. Yeah. And I love a good Cold War story, but this is not that. And like all the scenes where Mark is staring at the guards on the wall Mm -hmm. with his watch on the window latch. I was like, what? Like, if we're going to make a movie about nuclear subtext and, like, getting close to, what is that, midnight? Midnight on the the countdown clock or whatever. I forget what it's called. <clears throat> Zero hour? Is that it? Um, yeah, like, the, you know, they're, they're talking about uh, oh, yeah. three minutes to midnight or whatever, yeah. you know. If we're going to talk about that, like, let's talk about that. Like, mm-hmm. let's have more than just Mark staring at them with his watch on the window. Like, let's talk about having a Cold War. Let's talk about how this is affecting you, how living in West Germany or West Berlin is affecting you right now. Let's have more of that and less Margie. Yeah, or just like, I mean, if they wanted to go in that direction, he didn't even need to be a spy for it to demonstrate how... Living in an environment where it is kind of common colloquial knowledge that, like, you could be blasted off the face of the earth at any moment. Like, what strain does that put on your interpersonal relationships? Like, that's a real thing. And Mm -hmm. they could get that across. And I've seen other movies sort of about, especially Cold War era Europe, where that is used as a sort of backdrop Mm -hmm. uh, for different, you know, exploring different aspects of relationships or people's lives, this sort of, like, backdrop of imminent doom. But this just felt like, okay, like, so he's like a spy. (laughs) But don't worry about that until the very end when he's a spy again and then shit's going to blow up. Yeah, like it wasn't a pressure cooker. No. Their lives are almost carried on in absence of what's happening otherwise in West Germany. Like, they don't seem to lack anything. They're able to get where they need to go. They're able to purchase the things that they need to get. There's so many layers to this film. And it's like, yeah, we could have a Cold War movie. Let's talk about a movie set with the backdrop of the Cold War. But this is not that. Yeah. I think if it didn't have that in there, it probably would have added to the movie. Because with a movie like this where there's so much subtext. I mean, there's both both literal text and subtext. Mm Mm-hmm. With so much of it, less is more. Like, we need less of that kind of wrapping yeah. to get us to where we need to be and what the message is, I think. Because, mm-hmm. honestly, that whole thing with, like, Bob being face down in the tub and, like, the lights flickering and explosions and stuff, we could have ended the movie 
earlier. Maybe with just Mark II knocking on Helen's door, we could have had mm-hmm. just the end with Mark and Anna dying on the steps, embracing and kissing immediately before Anna shoots both of them again, and then just kind of had it end there. I mean, also, it, it could have ended like a while before that. Yeah. <laughs> the movie it just seemed very long, even though it wasn't. I did want to say there is a very good quote. There's some some good quotes that Anna gets like right at the beginning of the third act of the movie. We see some of Heinrich's footage. Like it seems like he's kind of an amateur cameraman. Mm-hmm. He's left the reels with Mark and she says something. Goodness is only a reflection upon evil. Yeah. And, and it made me think of all of the mirrors in the movie. There's like just bonanza like of mirrors just all over the place in this film, all over their apartment, all over the um, second apartment that Anna has. There's mirrors all over the dance studio, which that's a random, you know, addition into it, which also just kind of shows that Anna's brutal, I guess, or like in the eyes or under the gaze of Henrik, she starts becoming more brutal because she really like that scene in and of itself, the dancer, whoever they had playing that ballet dancer, did a really good job of like showing how much it hurt to be mm-hmm. forced to keep that pose for so long. But I thought that that was really cool. And I like the idea of mirrors considering we've got so many like doppelganger things going on. A lot of shots and mirrors looking at Mark in the mirror of the bathroom when he like splashes his face and he's like, okay, I can think more clearly. I love the way the movie is shot. There's a lot of like really cool continuous shots too. Yeah. There's the shot towards the beginning where Mark is being debriefed by the agency. I'm using quotes like we don't have any idea who they are. But the camera just keeps going around in a circle Mm -hmm. and facing the back of Mark and just going from like corner to corner in this room. It's just like it's a very good shot. And then the shot of them in the cafe like that one is going to stick out to me for sure. It was very, very, very well shot. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. For as convoluted as everything is, uh, everything else was. And I understand that it was on purpose. It does seem like... Sure. It does not seem like this was a ham-fisted attempt at an art movie, an artsy film. It seems like this guy really knew what he was going for and the feel that he wanted and what emotions to invoke and what to represent based on his own life. Yeah, I wish my friend Andy were still around because I would love to talk to him about this movie because I think that um, the types of movies that he made often sought to achieve the sort of same thing that this film did where it's less like it's less about the story you're telling and more about trying to give the audience a window into like a very intense emotional period in your life and to use horror to kind of accentuate those emotions and, you know, the way you're feeling out of control or unhinged or, you know, the way you're dealing with mental illness or, you know, different things like that. So I I feel like that's what this was kind of seeking to achieve, or at least I that's kind of what I got about halfway through. And so it made me think of his movies and I was like, oh man, like, okay, that is the one way I can lock into this is that I feel like it is kind of in line with the stuff that he was making. Mm -hmm. It's a challenging film in that. So a bad film tells you, it tells you all the things. A good film shows you a challenging film makes you feel it. 
Yep. And I'm not talking like, uh, you know, seeing you know, favorite character on screen die, you know. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Avengers, like, yeah. it's been a long time. But, like, you know, seeing uh, your favorite Marvel character or whatever die on screen. I won't even say specifics because I don't want to get... I don't want to upset the apple cart. But um, It's been many years. I know. It's I know, been, but still. <laughs> it's like, eh, maybe some, nobody's seen Endgame. Um, but showing that is one thing. But making you get to that point of, like, sad frustrated mm-hmm. like I definitely felt frustrated during the, the course of this film where I'm like where are we going with this yeah. where like where we were at point A when are we going to get to point B what is point B what are we doing mm-hmm. so we're a little frustrated we're getting the fact that Mark and Anna are completely unhinged um, that their their son is not the main focus in their li- in either of their lives Mark only cares about his son as a possession, as mm-hmm. a a part of the nuclear family. Anna doesn't give a crap about her kid. In fact, she says she didn't want to have the kid if she had known that uh, Heinrich was existed, that she wouldn't have had Bob with Mark. Um, and we, we get to this point where we're kind of like so beaten down by like all of these crazy scenes and all of this frustration and upsetting subject matter and like watching this all tear apart that when we get to the point where we find out about this tentacle monster, we're almost numb to what's happening. We're like, okay. All right. Well, I just watched a lot of, a lot of stuff. And now I'm feeling this. I'm feeling the feelings. I'm feeling confusion. I'm feeling frustration and uh, not understanding and then understanding and then more understanding. It's like, Oh gosh, my brain hurts after watching this. Like, I feel like I need to watch, I need to watch Step Brothers or something yeah. after this. Yeah, like, exactly. You, you got to have a break. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to go watch some Bob's Burgers or something. But yeah, so the the title of the movie, Possession, ends up being about so many different things. Yeah. It's not about a demonic possession, which I, I sincerely thought that this was going to end up being like that. Yeah. It has nothing to do with demonic possession. Although that was something that we both said at different parts during the movie where we were like, is somebody possessing their bodies? Right. It's like, nope, they're in possession of themselves. They're just not. So what I thought was that Anna was going to be possessed. And then I realized that the crux of this movie is that nobody can possess Anna. Right. Right. Yeah. Heinrich can't possess Anna. Mark can't possess Anna. Anna doesn't even possess Anna. Mm -hmm. Anna is like setting these things in motion that don't have, she, she can no longer control. She can't control Mark too anymore. He's built, he's fully formed. Yeah. So yeah. Wow. I think that's it. I think that's all I've got. (laughs) So next time, (laughs) keeping on a theme of movies we're a little ambivalent about. (laughs) Well, we shall see. We shall see. Yeah. Uh, We're going to do a movie that we were both really excited to see in the theater in June 2019, where I think I can speak for both of us and say pretty disappointed when we got out of the theater, but have not watched it since. So... This could be a midsummer situation where we change our minds, or we could completely stand by the fact that uh, it just didn't work for us. We shall see. The yeah. Dead Don't Die coming up next. Yes, I want to watch it again. We'll see. We'll see yeah. what happens. 
it had all the right pieces and did not land for me. But <laughs> we'll see. June of 2019 was a weird, weird time. So totally. Maybe I need to watch it now in a different headspace. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.